Well, today's sermon is titled, The Difficult Warning. Before we get into the text, let me explain what, what's so diffi- difficult about it. <clears throat> the consistency and congruency of the Bible is one of the many evidence, evidences that God is behind every word of it. There are those sections of Scripture, however, which seem at first glance to contradict certain otherwise obvious teachings of the Bible as a whole. The two passages we'll study today are of that nature. That's part of why they are difficult. Hopefully, if you've been here long at all, you know that this church stands on the doctrine known as eternal security, otherwise known as perseverance of the saints. Bottom line, if you're truly saved, there is absolutely no possibility of losing that salvation, period. That said, when taken at face value, I admit that the two passages we will cover today seem to possibly contradict that doctrine. So now what? We cannot simply ignore these passages because they don't fit easily into our um, viewpoint. But neither can we discount what is otherwise clear in the rest of the New Testament based on these exceptional passages. So what are we to do when we come to verses like these? But we need to grapple with them and pray over them as I have and try to figure out how they fit into the whole message of Scripture. We need to try to discover exactly what God meant for us to understand in these Verses Above all, when we come across passages like these, we must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, let's first read the passages in question and see what all this hubbub is about. And take both of the famously difficult passages from Hebrews at once today, from chapter 6 and chapter 10. In chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews begins to make a transition. He wants to move on to deeper subjects. And starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, or some of these other things like instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment wants to move on from those things. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pause here for a moment. We've been learning what the author says should have been elementary truths, all about the identity of Christ. Every sermon in this series so far has been some aspect of the identity of Christ. And he's saying that since these things are elementary, they certainly must be understood as they are the basis for everything else we will learn. And yet he's also saying that he wants to move on from there, but here's the thing to notice. The next six verses are actually parenthetical. The verses we're about to read and focus upon, the difficult verses, come between this transitional statement where the author says he's about to move on to more mature teaching and that more mature teaching itself. And then the parenthetical comments of verses 4 through 8, which we're about to read, he basically is saying, but some of you aren't going to understand the more mature things I'm about to bring up because... Because why? Because some of you are not actually saved. 
See, that's the context of these parenthetical verses that I'm about to read, that some of them still haven't fully embraced the elementary things about Christ and therefore won't be able to understand the more mature things coming up. So parenthetically, from verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Notice the last verse where the author starts to come out of the parenthesis. What we see here is that the writer is actually addressing two different audiences. Verses 4 through 8 are not only parenthetical in terms of content, but they are parenthetical in terms of audience. I believe the audience of verses 4 through 8 are those who, though they had come very, very close to salvation, were never truly saved. And that's why, as he comes out of the parenthesis in verse 9, he gives a disclaimer saying, But, beloved, what I just wrote doesn't apply to most of you, because I'm convinced that you are truly saved. You, he says, are part of the beloved. That is the true church or the saved. And so you can look forward to better things, the good things that accompany salvation. That is to say, to more mature and less elementary things. And then he starts to get into what those better things are all about, which will be the remainder of our series. So try to follow this. In verse 3, he says, I'm about to tell you about better things if God permits. In verse 9 he says, and now about those better things that I promised to speak of. But in verses 4 through 8 he parenthetically says, sadly, some of you are still back at square one or worse, you've already squandered your opportunity to be saved. My point is this, it is important to realize that the difficult verses we're going to study are parenthetical. And being parenthetical, they are addressed not to the true church, the beloved, his main audience, But instead, they are addressed to a few people who are basically wolves or at least goats among the sheep. See, this is important because if these parenthetical parenthetical verses are addressed to people who were never truly saved, then they do not mean that one can lose one's salvation. Now, hang on to that. We'll deal with some of the difficulties more specifically in a moment. But first, let's read that other difficult passage, which comes in chapter 10 starting with verse 26. The inspired author writes, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think you will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? as insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then just a few verses later, in verse 39, he writes, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. 
I just, I just, I got it. This is just like a total, like total departure. Is that spelled right? Because perseverance doesn't have an R in it. Mom, persevering? Perseverance has no R in before the, okay, sorry. Uh, you can ch- tell me later. I just had to do that because it was going to distract me for the next five minutes if I didn't just, somebody tell me later. It, it, it probably is right. I, all right. Just a few verses later, verse 39, he, he, he tells us, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So again, as in the chapter 6 passage, the writer ends his warning by indicating <laughs> that when he was talking, what? This just, this, just, this just turned into a Sunday school class. My turn to talk. Okay, all right. That's it. Preserving. That's it. That's why. I'm like, okay. I see every letter. I just, I don't know. My, my brain is weird. All right. So, again, just like in the chapter 6 passage, the writer ends his warning by indicating that when he was talking about those who fall away or who go on sinning willfully... He was not talking about those who ever really were a part of the church or the family of God. These who have nothing but a terrifying expectation of judgment, though they had once identified themselves with the church, are not truly of the church um, of Jesus Christ by faith, which is why in verse 39 he writes, but we are not of those. Why are we not of those? Because we have faith to the preserving of the soul. Once more, but we are not of who? We are not of those whose souls are not to be preserved. That is to say, those who did not truly believe. Similar to the book of James, two kinds of faith are being addressed, but only one saves. And the one that saves preserves the soul. We should take note that there absolutely can be an appearance of faith from some in our churches, a pseudo-faith, that is empty and dead, saving no one. Friend, if you wind up turning away from Christ after coming so close, after receiving all the knowledge you should have needed to fully believe in Him, and turning away after having had every opportunity to surrender to Him, then at that point, Hebrews clearly teaches there is no further hope for you. And I know that's hard to hear, but I will not water down this warning because it's certainly not watered down in our text. There's a word for the state of those who the writer of Hebrews is speaking of in these two passages. It is a word which was first used in the Old Testament, but it is also used in the New Testament, though it doesn't always come out in the English. The word is apostasy. One Bible dictionary defines it like this. Apostasy, rebellion or abandonment of faith. It refers in the Old Testament to Israel's unfaithfulness to God and in the New Testament to the abandonment of Christian faith. Listen, it's not a matter of whether apostasy exists today. It certainly does. People turn away from Christ, even after seeming to embrace Him. They often become a powerful force in the cause of Satan. I've seen this happen. I've even baptized people who later turned against God. And there is nothing so painful that I've ever experienced in the ministry. Sometimes those who are of this ilk even write books on why they are no longer a Christian. They get extra clout in their case for atheism or agnosticism because, after all, they had supposedly been a Christian before they decided to reject Christianity. What I'm telling you is that they were never truly saved. 
The Bible actually predicts that this will happen a lot. For instance, from 1 Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Apostasy is to fall away from faith in Christ. There are many verses that talk about falling away. Those words are in the Bible. And in this case, we mean someone who falls away completely, rejecting Christ and his gospel message. We have probably all seen this happen with our own eyes. And since it does happen, I suppose we should be thankful that God addressed this in Hebrews, the book we are studying. Apostasy happens far too often. Sometimes in these cases, people continue to give lip service to their faith, faith, depending on who is listening, even though in their heart they have actually fallen away and don't really believe. Other times they may have become belligerent, a mouthpiece of Satan, perhaps even functioning as one of the many antichrists the Bible says have gone out into the world. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, we're told that apostasy of this kind will run rampant before the return of Christ. Lately, from my vantage point, this very thing has been on the rise. But regardless, we should expect and dread more of it before the end. Apostasy is happening more and more, and there are two very important things that we need to understand about it. First of all, regarding apostasy, number one, the apostate was never truly a believer. Those who would use these verses to say that a true believer can somehow become an unbeliever again or that someone who is saved can later lose their salvation have at least one major problem. They must also admit that these verses say it is impossible for that person to ever be saved again. One thing that is absolutely clear in these passages is that there is no back and forth when it comes to professing faith in Christ. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put Him to open shame. In chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so even if these passages meant to say that a truly saved person can lose their salvation, then we would also have to admit that such a person as has absolutely no hope of ever being saved again. Most people who would use these verses to say that salvation can be lost would not want to accept the fact that once lost, is lost forever. But that is exactly what they would have to accept from these verses. Are we really to believe that a person who had become, had been redeemed by the blood, as we've been singing about, of the Lamb? How powerful is the blood of the Lamb? What can wash away my sin? Anybody? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For a little bit. For a little while. No? I don't think so. That a person who had become a child of God, one regenerate in spirit, one who is 
completely a new creation in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 puts it, one who has been born again, as Jesus said in John 3, one who is now a member of the royal priesthood, as 1 Peter 2, 9 says we are, one whose eternal destiny with God was ordained from before time, as Ephesians 1 teaches, a person who has become a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, grafted into the family tree of God to be co-heirs of his eternal glory, can later find himself or herself in a position with absolutely no chance, no hope, and only a personal guarantee of eternal judgment from God? I think not. What is the power of the cross if that is true? You might be saved one hour and the next unsaved and worse, having no hope of redemption from that point forward. No, I think these passages in Hebrews must be about people who came ever so close to saving faith, often even professing to believe, only to reject Christ in their hearts and never to truly follow Him when it got right down to it. As always, when something is less obvious, we need to see what the rest of the Bible says. So let's quickly run through a few verses which promise eternal security to the true believer. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Romans 8, 38 through 39, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. And Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, you also After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And friends, beyond all these texts, Jesus always taught that our salvation is eternal. He spoke of a permanent Salvation that would last forever, not a temporary one that could be lost again, even after having been found. John 3, 16, for example, Jesus said we are given eternal life, not temporary life. The picture of salvation presented in the New Testament is never a back and forth proposition, is always absolute, complete, and forever. Ours is an eternal salvation. And by definition, that means it has no end. Eternal things cannot be nullified. They cannot be lost. they They cannot be given away cannot go away. The critical issue then is whether or not you have truly placed your trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ, thereby being saved. Once He is your Savior, He is your Savior eternally. Jesus is the only one who can save you, and He's the only one that can keep you saved. It is all an act of God, you see. We don't save ourselves, and we don't keep ourselves saved. Scripture teaches that even our faith is empowered and protected by God. He chooses to save us. He chooses to keep us saved. While God does not force our faith, He certainly empowers it. 
And listen, the faith God empowers, He also keeps. Back to the point, since Scripture is clear that salvation is eternal, we can also know that an apostate, that is one who falls away, even to the point of eternal judgment, must have never been a true believer in the first place. But we can't never always sometimes tell about people, can we? No, we can't. But God knows. God always knows. Keep in mind that it is possible to fall from something without ever getting to the top of it. You can fall from a cliff halfway up. Another example might be a broken engagement. When two people are planning to get married, but they break it off before the wedding, they fall away from each other. In the same way, to say that someone fell away from the faith does not necessarily mean that their faith was ever of a saving nature. Only God knows. And God says if they do fall away, as in the way spoken of in our text, then it proves that their faith was not saving faith. For more on the kind of, this kind of pseudo-faith, read the book of James. But right now, hear me say that based on most of the New Testament message, an apostate, the person who utterly falls away from Christ, rejecting him, was never truly married to Christ in the first place. Some folks leave Jesus standing at the altar. They never really knew him. Secondly, and sadly, we can know that the fate of the apostate is worse than the fate of the ignorant. This will be hard to think about, but it is clearly true from our text and many other passages of Scripture. What's the name of this sermon? A difficult warning. And a warning it is. In fact, I cannot imagine a more serious or frightening warning that would ever need to be heard by people who claim to believe. This is the hardest warning church folks will ever hear. Be warned. The fate of the apostate is worse than the fate of the ignorant. Hold fast. Did you know that there is some evidence in Scripture supporting the idea of differing degrees of punishment in hell? Now listen carefully. I would not say there are literal levels of hell like something from Dante's Inferno. But many theologians agree that hell will be worse for some than others. God is an entirely just God. In the same way that there will be rewards in heaven for those who are particularly faithful, I tend to think that hell will be a worse place for the likes of Hitler than the average person who never received Christ. I'm not going to die on this hill, but differing degrees of judgment or wrath, depending on how people live their lives, almost seems to be required of justice. Maybe so, maybe not. But is this just my own thought-up idea? No. Take a look at Matthew 11, starting with verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And this is not the only time Jesus indicated that some would be worse off in the judgment than others. 
For those who cause children to, to, to stumble, he said, it would be better for you that a heavy millstone be tied around your neck and you be cast into the depths of the sea. He did not utter this warning to every single person, but to those who would commit sin against children. He told Pilate, the man who ultimately ordered his crucifixion, that the sins of the Jewish leaders were worse than his. Because while Pilate operated out of ignorance, the religious leaders operated with full knowledge. In fact, Christ's judgments against the religious leaders were always much more severe precisely because they should have known better. This idea of more culpability based on more complete knowledge is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in our text. Those who have heard the truth, those who have come so close and who even have been enlightened about the good news of Jesus, as he says, and yet have wound up rejecting him anyway, would seem to be held in more severe contempt by God. Those who have even tasted, those who have been on the brink, those who actually brushed up against the drawing power of the Spirit of God and somehow found it in themselves to turn away, will incur a stricter judgment. I believe this is the message of both of our passages today. The fate of the apostate is worse than the fate of the ignorant. As for the fate of the ignorant, that is another message based on Romans chapter 1, where we learn that we are all without excuse because God has revealed himself to all. That said, some have more knowledge than others and have heard things explained more clearly, but they reject Christ nonetheless. According to our text, it would seem that these are to be more severely judged than those who had less opportunity. Now then, let's drill down into these two texts a little bit more because I'm not going to skim over this even though that would be easier. What I'm going to do in order to try to unpack these texts is to put every phrase from both passages into two categories. Virtually every phrase of both passages in, is either describing the identity of the apostate person or his destiny. Look to the screen if you would and also to your Bibles or your listening guide and let's walk through this. By the way, if anyone would like a print version of this, just email me or you could probably take a picture of it. First of all, the identity of the apostate. Verse 4 tells us this person has been enlightened. They've, they've had, they have knowledge. They've heard the gospel. Verse 4 also says they've tasted of the heavenly gift. No, tasted, not consumed. This person has been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the hardest spots in the, ver in the passage. We think it possibly means that they experienced his power. They were around it. Um, his draw, maybe his conviction. Verse 5 says they tasted the good word of God. They've heard his word from the scripture. Verse 5 also, he tastes the powers of the age to come. I think of Simon uh, Magus and how he wanted the power that, was it Paul? <laughs> Paul or Peter? I think it was Paul. That Paul had, and he wanted that power. He tasted the power. This, this apostate has fallen away. Again, bounced off, broken engagement. Just because they've fallen away doesn't mean they had ever really made it all the way across the line. They've crucified Christ again to himself, verse 6. That's willful rejection. Okay, this is not about somebody who just kind of slipped away from, you know, church for a while. This is about a person who crucified Christ again to himself. Willful rejection. Has put Christ to shame. That's false testimony. You know, claimed to be a Christian but really wasn't. And their life yields only thorns and thistles. That's verse 8. By their fruit you will know them, Jesus said. Then we go to chapter 10, verse 26, still under the identity. 
of the apostate. This person goes on sinning willfully. It's like a bad spring. There's only going to be bitter water. Has knowledge of the truth. Again, that knowledge, that enlightenment, understanding, not necessarily acceptance. Verse 29, they've trampled underfoot the Son of God. Again, made Christ their enemy. Verse 29, as regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. This is opposite of trusting in the blood. Might refer, maybe a reference here, to taking communion without true faith, possibly. The blood of the covenant, that's what Jesus referred to as he said, remember me. Has insulted, verse 29, has insulted the spirit of grace. I think this is a reference to that unpardonable sin from Mark 3.29. This idea of blaspheming the spirit, basically rejecting the spirit. That God himself came to you and you said, nah. Now the destiny of the apostate. Back to verse 6 of chapter 6, impossible to renew them to repentance. Rejection after knowledge can become permanent. This hardening of the heart that we read about in Scripture. Verse 8 also, will be worthless to God. No fruit. No fruit in their life. Nothing that helps God. It's close to, this person is close to being cursed, verse 8. That's, that's a, that refers to, to hell. They're, they're, they're close to that. That's what's coming. And then verse 8 again, ends up being burned. Like a fire. Verse 26 of chapter 10, has no other sacrifice to cover sins. Nobody but me comes, nobody comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. And verse 27, has a terrifying expectation of judgment. It, I think it's in the same verse, isn't it? Later in Hebrews that we come once to die, after that the judgment. They have a terrifying expectation of judgment. Verse 27, again, will be consumed by the fire of God. It's more of a fact than a threat. Also in verse 27, will be an enemy of God. They're an enemy of his program of redemption. They're causing others to stumble. They're not expanding God's kingdom. They might even be somehow hindering God's kingdom. Verse 30, is promised God's vengeance. Also verse 30, will be judged by God, possibly an especially hard judgment as we talked about. And then verse 31, will fall into the terrifying hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire when it comes to anything that has not been made holy. And that covers both of the passages that we're studying today. And listen, I do realize this is all very hard to hear. But we need to think seriously about the identity and the destiny of this person who finds himself or herself in the category of apostasy before a holy God. Hopefully it's also obvious we are not reading about a person who was ever a true child of God by grace through faith in Christ. That's just not what we just read about. Remember that in both places, 6 and 10, and don't forget this, that in the end of each of these passages, the writer stops and basically says, but wait, I realize that none of this is the case for you. He says, I recognize that you are not like this, and so none of this applies to you. But for us, the question is this, if he isn't telling his primary audience that they are hopeless apostates, then why is he telling them and us about apostasy at all? I think there are at least two reasons. Reasons for the warning. Number one, that some should make their salvation sure. It is one thing to believe the God who saved you will keep you saved. That's good. But it is another thing to take your salvation for granted as to operate as if you had a get-out-of-jail-free card or a special license to go ahead and sin 
or to have no motivation to fan the flames of your faith. As if post-salvation you could do whatever you wanted in life, forgetting all about God and still go to heaven. No, instead, because of the fear of the living God, because of a certain sobriety that comes from warnings like these, you would want to do good works in keeping with your repentance, and you would want to endeavor to believe more and more strongly that which you have believed. As the Bible says repeatedly, the person who endures to the end will be saved. This means that salvation is not just a ticket to heaven to be set aside for later when you need it, but no, salvation is also a lifestyle of trusting in Christ and following Him. Where there is no endurance of faith and practice, there was no salvation in the first place. Therefore, church family, I urge you to endeavor to endure and endure well. I think that is exactly what passages like this mean to say to believers. Further, let me beg you not to entertain your moments of doubt. Everyone has those moments, but true believers don't hang out there for long. Don't read the wrong books at the wrong time. Don't play around with unbelief. As your pastor, I urge you, when doubt rears its ugly head, turn hard to Christ and His church for help with your faith. I've seen too many fall away. I don't want to see it again. And what of this falling away? Can you completely fall away if you really know Christ? No. We've covered that. So what's the danger? The danger is that apostasy, according to our text, is permanent. What if you aren't really saved in the first place? What if you've been playing the game, maybe even without realizing it? I certainly hope that you eventually come to Christ for real, but worse than anything for you would be allowing doubt to lead you to the point of rejecting the Lord, especially now that you have knowledge of Him. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. See, I do believe the writer of Hebrews is concerned about those who are teetering, teetering on the edge of doubt. He addresses the potential apostate in an attempt to yank back those who are dangerously close to walking down that road. By condemning those who have already willfully turned away from Christ, he's warning those who are teetering on the edge in terms of whether or not to believe. Since there is an element of choice in faith, that the warning is to choose Christ firmly once and for all and then see that you do not waver. See that you hold fast to Him. As the Bible says in another place, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. As a person who believes strongly in both free will and predestination, I absolutely love this verse. But as I ignore that rabbit, <laughs> let me simply say that we who believe in eternal security must be very careful not to lead people to take their salvation for granted. Faith that does not endure is not true faith. If what faith you have is on the verge of not enduring, be warned, your faith may not be real in the first place. I would encourage you to seek the Lord Jesus with all of your heart as if your eternity depends on it, because it does. 
Make your salvation sure with more and more surrender and with a more and more faithful life and fruitful life. Folks, there's simply no doubt this passage is meant to scare some people. Please, for the sake of your own soul, do not even begin to tread underfoot the cross of Christ in such a way. Do not insult the Spirit of God who has offered you such grace. Do not fall away. See your marriage with Christ through and hold fast to Him, even as you understand that if you are saved, He is actually the one holding on to you. Lastly, I think there's a second reason for these warnings, chapter 6 and chapter 10 of Hebrews, and here it is. Number two, that believers would realize there are those we cannot help. That's tough stuff right there, but I can only preach the text. These passages mean that there are those whose hearts have been hardened through their rejection of God. There are those who have already heard the gospel clearly, appearing to have accepted it, only to reject it later, and sadly, they are beyond hope. The Bible is clear that there's a point when the heart is simply too hard. I know that's very hard to hear, difficult to hear. It's, more, it's important to remember that only God knows who is in this category, but the point is that this can happen. And what we need to get is the sad truth that even Billy Graham couldn't lead everybody to salvation. Neither can I, neither can you. Some have hard hearts. Some are even already in a state of apostasy. Someone here is probably thinking of a loved one right now. Maybe even one who possibly fits into this category. Wherein the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible for them to be renewed. Again, to repentance. You may know someone who has fallen away and rejected Christ after claiming to have received Him. And you still want to hold out hope. And hear me say that you should. You should keep praying and keep reaching out and keep your hope for that person because you do not know. You just don't know whether they have completely fallen away or not. Even their words may not truly convey their heart. Only God knows. Hear that. Only God knows. Not a judgment for us to make. What I'm trying to say with this point is that on a larger scale, and I believe it especially relates to our current situation in America, there is a balance between trying to lead people to Jesus and understanding that many are not ready, and even beyond this, that some have already had their chance. Again, I think especially in America. How is this relevant? Well, at times I know that I have absolutely stopped reaching out for a season because of two frequent experiences. Either I've had too many encounters with people who claim to be a Christian but frankly don't seem to be following Christ. Or if that isn't discouraging enough, I've had too many encounters with those who've heard all about it, maybe even previously claimed to believe yet eventually came to the point of flat-out rejecting Christ and His gospel. Yes, I really do talk to people who say they used to believe, but not anymore. Beyond personal experiences, we all hear about so-called famous Christians who have turned their back on Christ. And this is very discouraging. We need to understand that we live in a country where many people have already had multiple chances at Jesus, and some of them, sadly, fall into the category written of in our text today. They are apostates, 
I hate to say it, but I'm afraid much of America is in a state of apostasy. Some of these will still claim the Christian label, but dig a little deeper and they will reject the true identity and lordship of Jesus Christ. Others, having been previously enlightened that has given a full knowledge about Christ, have boldly and outspokenly decided against Him. They are apostates destined for judgment. And like it or not, the author of Hebrews says, you and I cannot reach them. So what now? What should we do about these folks? We should let them go. I think that's definitely part of the message from Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. We need to stop going back to the same people who have already had multiple chances and go to the spiritually hungry instead. We really don't need any further mediocrity in the church of Jesus Christ today. Am I wrong? Remember the parable Jesus told about the banquet. We said if they don't come, try to make everything more palatable and fix better food and make it look better to them and make sure there's nothing they don't like and then maybe they'll come. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's not what he said. The important people didn't show up. So what did the master of the feast say? He said, go out and bring people off the street. He said, go get the ones who are needy and bring them into my court. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And quoting Isaiah, he said, God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is not necessarily about literal poverty or people literally on the street, though sometimes they are more open to the gospel because of their humble position. But more than that, this is about going to those who are spiritually hungry rather than those who say they don't need God and his church. Let them go. You've probably heard that the nuns are growing. N-O-N-E-S. That is to say, those who claim none in terms of religion when surveyed. This category is growing like crazy. And it's growing mostly from people who used to claim Christianity. I'm telling you to let the new nuns go and stop worrying about the latest survey that tells us Christianity is declining. In fact, Jesus has never lost a single one of his own. We need not to be shut down when the discouragement comes through encounters with unbelievers and especially apostates who have willfully rejected Christ and said we need to keep looking for the people who have never heard or never understood. Sometimes that might lead you to another country, but other times it might lead you across the street. You can find out fairly quickly with a few conversations. I'd encourage you to find those who, are never, who never really understood the ones who never were enlightened about Christ, and know that at least some of them sometimes will be saved if they hear the gospel from you as God intends. What I'm saying is that sometimes in order to keep going, because we get weary, don't we? And we get discouraged. And in order to keep going to those who God knows will be saved, you'll first have to let the rest go. I honestly think the church today needs to stop being so discouraged. And what we need to do is we need to try the other side of the boat. Read the New Testament, folks. Just read it. You won't see early believers like Peter and Paul giving up on evangelism because most people rejected their messages. 
No, you'll ever see them continuing to try to convince the unconvinced. Remember Paul on Mars Hill in Athens? He went there once. Once. Some believed and followed him, but most rejected his message. He took those who believed and went on to whatever was next. In fact, Jesus said, those who reject us reject him. Luke 10, 16. Just think about the next time you feel rejected. Jesus said they're actually rejecting him, not just you. And since he's God, that kind of makes their rejection of you a little bit less of a big deal. Specifically speaking, in my opinion, apostasy is the saddest thing in all the earth. Nothing discourages believers like someone we thought was a brother or sister bailing. This is so much more sad to me than death because the Bible is clear as to the eternal destiny of such a one and beyond sadness for them, the apostate person also puts my Savior to public shame, potentially even leading others to turn away from Christ. What about them? Their judgment is just. And yet it makes me sad. I can tell you that seeing real people descend into apostasy is enough to cause some pastors to throw in the towel. But here we are today, together. And I want to say to someone who's here today, If you have been sliding down the path that we've been discussing, maybe it's not too late for you. Maybe you've not gone too far. I urge you come back to the light before you, your time is up. Come all the way into faith with Jesus. If you do not, you will eventually find out what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God, unrepentant and unforgiven. I pray that never happens to anyone in this room. In fact, my prayer for each of you today is the same as that of the Apostle Paul for the Philippian church. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you. There it is. Work out your salvation, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I'm going to close this morning by giving you an opportunity to come off the fence if that is where you have been and to nail down your salvation. You can put a marker in the ground today. You can build an altar of remembrance in your heart. 
This can be the very date when you make sure that you have placed your eternal destiny in the hands of Christ. The Bible says all those who trust in Him will not be disappointed. If you're ready to put an end to your mental gymnastics about Jesus and simply jump into His arms of grace once and for all, now's your chance. Would you pray with me? Just say yes to Jesus. I'm all in. I surrender. All the way, I don't want to, I don't want to risk it. I want to, I don't want to know that today I've said yes, I've surrendered. Lord, that I would be justified by my faith in you. I believe, I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sin, that he made a way for me to have peace with you, that he rose again to show that he could come through on his promise of eternal life. I believe, I surrender. Save my life, save my eternity. I'm putting it all on Jesus. If that's you today, this is just the beginning. He will change you. He will come into your heart. He will come in and begin to, to clean house. There'll be things he wants you to change. You'll, you'll know what they are as you go along. But you do have to turn from yourself and turn to him in desperation. And that is when you are saved. I hope that happens today for someone. And that you write down the date. Put it in your Bible. Let me know about it. Walk back to the back in a minute and tell one of the, the greeters in the back that are there to pray with you so you can say it to somebody so it can be remembered so we can talk to you about next steps. Let it be today that you have no further question that you've put it all in on Christ. God, we stray like sheep. As our shepherd, bring us home. Bring us home. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.